Chris and Shane observed with a five inch refractor on episode 374 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. I'm Chris and joining me is Shane. We're amateur astronomers who love looking up the night sky. And this podcast is for everybody who likes going out under the stars. So maybe before we get going on our observations, Shane, we can uh, maybe we can talk about giving away. Uh, I got a few of these RASC observers calendars we can give away to um, Patreon supporters. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we gave a few calendars away last year, uh, and I can't remember, but it was some sort of competition that we ran. Uh, this year, no competition, uh, just uh, similar to, um, was it the Alistair Telescope giveaway? Anyway, yeah. it doesn't really matter. Um, basically, uh, if you're a Patreon supporter, we will put your name in for a draw, uh, which will happen on December 10th. And uh, we'll announce the winners and yeah, um, it'll just be a random number generator picking the winners. Yeah, it's it's just the simplest way for us to do it. We mm-hmm. do the podcast just for fun. <laughs> and and in the past, we run like competitions and that it's uh, it takes up a lot more time and uh, th- than we have, unfortunately. So this is easy because we have the details for the Patreon supporters already. And we do appreciate the Patreon support. It it helps keep the show going um, for sure. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, truth be told, we, we do really appreciate the Patreon supporters, but throughout the year, um, you know, I think one of our lessons learned or observations is that we in the past maybe didn't thank them enough. So this is just a way to thank uh, the Patreon supporters. Yeah, that's a good point uh, because I think the original idea is that we would do this podcast um, during the pandemic, uh, especially like during the lockdowns, because it seemed like we were heading towards a lockdown. And then we did get a lockdown like three weeks after you and or two weeks after you and I had chatted in person. And so we started uh, the podcast at that time in March of 2020. And then, uh, you know, the plan was, hey, we'll do this for three or four months. And then, of course, the the pandemic uh, really dragged on for a couple of years. But uh, for the most part, it kind of feels like it's uh, at least in the very final stages, but we've, we've continued on Shane, it seems somehow. Yeah. Yeah. We haven't ran out of content or topics, so I guess we keep going. Yeah. I think the thing that I'm running into now, the biggest, oddly enough, the biggest challenge for me anyhow, is, is the fact that, uh, and you were you know, sort of alluding to this when we were chatting just before is that I, I will stay up quite a bit at night doing astronomy. And then, uh, I'm often not at my most, uh, you know, sharp uh, intellect, sharp, I'm not as sharp intellectually in the morning when I've been up and I was up last night at three o'clock in the morning doing a little as I was telling you. So mm-hmm. that's, that's the thing that I find a little bit challenging, but uh, it's, it's all good. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. It's been a lot of fun doing the what, what has been the what are what are some of the takeaways for you, Shane, for, for doing the podcast? Now we've been doing it for, I guess, uh, three and a third, two thirds years or something like that. Yeah. Takeaways. Um, I don't know that there's just a lot of interest in visual observing. Uh, You know, obviously you and I are interested in it, Mm. but the amount of uh, listeners and the amount of emails we get, there's a lot of passion for this uh, that's out there. Mm -hmm. And it's just been great to connect with people. And um, the other thing that I think stands out is just the varied observing programs or interests maybe is a better word uh of of you know our listeners which i think is a representation of the whole community but you know i remember you and i we've talked about this a few times but when we first started talking about um 
some asteroids that people could observe. Mm -hmm. We thought, eh, I don't know if this is going to be all that popular. <laughs> Why did we sudden, do an episode on this? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And all of a sudden it was like, holy cow, there's a lot of people that are observing these things and are super interested. So yeah, um, I just, I, I love that variance and it's, uh, it's actually opened up my observing to more objects. Um, uh, even like variable stars, I don't do them a lot still, but, um, uh, you know, I certainly have gained a, a greater interest in those and carbon stars and, uh, you know, having the various guests on that are, I don't know if experts is quite the right word. In some cases it is for sure, but people that just have a passion for observing mm -hmm. some of these categories of objects has been great. And then, yeah, listener observing reports is, uh, you know, kind of motivation to look at some of that stuff too. Yeah. Yeah. No, for How sure. about you? What's your biggest takeaway? Well, my, my biggest takeaway is, um, just to uh, keep things simple. I think you've, you've really been good at, uh, and enforcing that rule. That's our rule. We have one rule. Keep it simple, I think, is is probably the uh, the number one rule, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> the KISS principle. Yeah, exactly. Not not to overly complicate things with an acronym, but yes, keep it simple. Yeah, for sure. And then the, the other thing is, is that uh, I've been really surprised at how many people do write in. That's really quite uh, amazing. And, and we appreciate that quite a bit. It's very cool. Mm -hmm, absolutely. Because when you when you do this, I know when we were doing it, um, when we, we had our first podcast, um, we did whatever it was, 12 or 13 episodes, and uh, it, we never heard from anybody. And it just felt like, it felt really almost claustrophobic, like we were just sort of sitting in a closed cell and then um, making these and then putting them out. And I, I, it's hard to say, like, I think people were listening to them, but when you don't get that feedback and you don't have that interaction, I, I didn't enjoy that. Um, really, I didn't enjoy it at all. And so we stopped doing it and, uh, and you had some, uh, some, uh, feedback as well. And then, so when we did this again, I think we did it in such a way that it's, um, helped to prompt more conversation with whoever is listening. Um, and it's, uh, it's really amazing, you know, like we were, you know, you and I were hanging out on Saturday night and we were talking about the fact that it kind of comes ebbs and flows. I mean, there's some weeks where we're getting emails every day, which is awesome. And then there's some weeks where we might get, uh, you know, half dozen or so emails, but sort of in the, in the grand scheme of things, uh, it seems like uh, a large number of the listeners have, have written in and provided their feedback and more recently show ideas. I, mm -hmm. we're in a, we're in a bit of a run. I think we've received six or eight show ideas recently. If people have show ideas, they can send those in as well. It's pretty cool. Yeah, which actually helps quite a bit too, because we do run into some funks occasionally where we're thinking, what what should we talk about this week? What are we going to talk about this week? Yeah, somebody wrote in, we were going to do it today, but I, I want to spend a little bit more time on this one, bounce some some things back and forth, mm. is the uh, LDAS versus Equatorial. Mm. Yeah, somebody mm. had that as an idea. And actually, there's like I said, there's quite a few. And then I think uh, we'll just organize those and try to do them before Christmas ish, something like that. And yeah, should be good. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so yeah, so we're going to give away a calendar. What do you think? Um, actually, we're, I think we'll do three calendars, Patreon supporters. So if, if you'd like to be entered into the Patreon, uh, supporter draw, please be a Patreon member. Um, I think we'll do the draw. What do you think? December 10th. That'll give people a month. Yep. That sounds ish. good. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, we'd appreciate that. And then, yeah, that should be fun. So, so here's a loaded question. Did you get any observing in this week, Shane? 
Um, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I was at uh, I was at your cottage um, Saturday night. No, Friday night. Um, Friday night. Yeah, yeah. And, we, had, uh, we, but we had Friday off, folks, so it seemed like it was a Saturday. It did. Yeah, it's uh, I'm all out of whack here, but mm. yeah, it was um it was a nice session. It was just great to be under the stars. And uh, how about you? I, I know you were there that night, but did you yeah. get anything else in? Yeah, I did uh, end up doing that session with you. You you left. I warmed up. I did another session. Mm-hmm. I came in around midnight, went to bed for a few hours, and then got up in the middle, like three, four o'clock in the morning, and did another session for an hour, and then went to bed. And then last night, it was it was really warm last night. It was like three degrees and cloudy. And then, but I I woke up at three o'clock and went out for like fifteen or twenty minutes with the binoculars. But uh, yeah, it was uh, Friday night was pretty cold and windy, eh? Yeah. Um... For sure. The wind was, a was an issue. The temperature wasn't terrible. Um, you know, what was it? Base temperature was around minus four and then a little colder with the wind. Minus 12 with the wind. They said. Yeah. yeah. I, I think my biggest issue is I'm just not acclimated quite yet to the, the cold temperatures. Um, you know, in, in January last night would have been, uh, like a balmy, a balmy observing session. We might not even have worn jackets because we'd be mm-hmm. so used to cold yeah, temperatures. Exactly. Yeah. But this time of the year, I'm I'm still kind of in that transition mode. Yeah, so, I think hands I think and the, hands and feet got a little chilly. Yeah, I was fine. It's just the wind, I find kind of. I in fact, I was totally fine when you and I were observing, and then I did the other whatever another hour and a half or so after you left, and then. Um, I was fine. But when I got up in the morning and went out, it was a little windier and I think just a hair colder or something, although it still said it was minus four, but it felt like fantastically cold. Like I went out and I would observe for 15 minutes and then come in for two or three minutes and then go out for 15 minutes and come in for two or three minutes. I just, yeah, it felt, uh, felt a lot colder for some reason in, in the morning. Although I think, you know, and I, I realized this um, the next day is when when you and I were observing, you know, we're kind of like, you know, up and down and taking a look and having a chat and oh, got to get this out of my car because you know um, we had a few things to hand off and then uh, yeah, we're kind of moving around a bit more. And I think when I'm just observing by myself, I go out and just plunk down at the telescope and we're just sitting there, not moving for a long period of time, and you just get colder faster, I guess. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. Yeah, um, let's see what did. Uh, what did we look at? What what stuck out to you for uh, for the stuff that we looked at? We have my five inch telescope set up. You brought it. You brought a telescope, but I already have my five inch set up, and and it wasn't amazing conditions with the wind. So I think it was a good decision just to uh, share some views. It was kind of fun. Yeah, yeah. I brought my little sixty three. I think it is, or is it sixty four? Can't remember. The telemeter. The telemeter, yeah, it's sixty-three. I think, yeah, yeah, I think so. So I brought that, but left it in the vehicle. Um, yeah, part of it was just the conditions weren't phenomenal. Uh, it was a good night, just not a great night. Uh, but also, I was pretty tired. Uh, I didn't have a lot of energy, so that kind of got in the way a little bit too. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, really enjoyed the views through your five inch. And uh, what stood out? Um, I don't know. The Helix Nebula was incredible. Uh, I really enjoyed those views. Um, it's kind of neat to have a quick look at M13, the mm-hmm. ring, even Saturn, you know, the, the seeing wasn't great at all, but, um, it was fun to have a quick look at that and pull out some of the moons. Um, yeah, that's probably, uh, that's probably the standouts for me. Um, what about yourself? 
Yeah, just like when we were looking at M13, I was, uh, so I kind of hunted it up with 18 power and the 40 millimeter. And then I put the 17 millimeter 92 degree eyepiece in, which gives us about 45 power. And uh, I was just really curious what you would think about that 17 millimeter eyepiece. Uh, you know, I, I know you're you're a bit of an eyepiece aficionado, um, even a little bit more than me. And I was always curious to see what you, what you would think of that eyepiece as uh as we were messing around in the session. Yeah, I was quite impressed with it. Um, one of the comments that I mentioned to you that night is that 92 degrees seems just right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, when I've looked through 100 degree eyepieces in the past, um, and which really are just the ethos from Teleview, uh, I didn't love the views through those because I felt like I had to move my eyeball all around to take in the entire field of view. And um, I just thought, what's the point? <laughs> you know, I, yeah. I, I thought it was just too much. And uh, you, looking through your 17 millimeter Explore Scientific, um, certainly, you know, the 92 degrees, you still have to pan your eye around a little bit, but it didn't seem strenuous. It, it was mm -hmm. uh, it was a really nice view. It's quite sharp. Uh, light throughput, I thought was quite good. Um, the only complaint I have, and I think this is more of a me problem with how my, just how I'm built physically is that yeah. I was having some blackout issues. Like if I got too close and this is wearing my glasses, even mm -hmm. it almost had too much eye relief for me. So like if I got yeah. too close uh, to the eye guard, I was uh, having some pretty serious blackouts, but if I just back my, my eye or my, you know, my head position back uh, just a couple of millimeters, um, then I was okay. And I wasn't having those blackout issues. And, yeah. you know, with the, with an eyepiece like that, with a huge field of view, it makes that hovering style of observing a lot easier. Um, because one of the downsides to that hovering style is sometimes, you know, you're, you're not able to hold, at least I'm not able to hold my eye perfectly center, you know, in place to see whatever I'm looking at. And with a narrower field of view, that becomes an issue because all of a sudden you're not seeing anything. Yeah, But with this 92 degrees, you can sort of sway a little bit and not miss anything. So overall, I was quite impressed with it. Um, certainly also acknowledge the the balance issues that it caused. <laughs> it's, it could also serve as ballast in a, a shipping vessel. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, nice eyepiece. Very nice. Yeah. I, I haven't noticed. For me, it doesn't black out. I've, I've never really seen it black out. Um, for me, the the number one characteristic, which I enjoy so much, is that when I do put it in, I can just be sitting and observing and sketching and going back and forth between the sketchbook and the uh, the field lens is just so, or the eye, the you know the eyepiece uh, lens that you look through is so easy that yeah. um, like you don't spend a lot of time sort of reacquiring the image or anything like that. So I, I like how easy it is to kind of, you know, the eye positioning is not critical on it. You can, you know, as you kind of bring your eye towards it, you can see like that field of view. It's just sitting there, uh, you know, like a photograph or a painting instead of like some eyepieces, you'll notice they kind of pour in or like you said, you can get like this flicker from the blackout or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, but I can't remember what it was like the the first night I used it. it may, maybe there was a bit of a learning curve. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know. The other thing was we were standing, which I usually don't yeah. do when I'm using that eyepiece. Usually, usually we're, we're seated. So it, it could just be, uh, you know, first time uh, eyepiece uh, learning. 
Yeah. Yeah. And that's totally fair. Um, Sometimes there there is a little bit of a learning curve, you know, don't just get used to an eyepiece. And also Mm -hmm. you're right, man, uh, sitting, sitting would make a huge difference too, for sure. Yeah. I have uh, thought, uh, and, and I think what I might do eventually is try to, uh, this will be a next year project is to figure out or build a counterweight system for using that eyepiece because I have set it up to scan because with 45 degrees, it's actually just under 45 degrees in the uh, 750 millimeter focal length uh, F5 apochromat. It's still two degrees. You get two degree field, which is which is large enough that if you're looking at nearby targets um, or like the veil or something, you don't want to be switching the eyepiece in and out. And it's fun to just to pan around with it. But the way it is... Uh, such a huge weight difference between that eyepiece and anything else I own, you're not as inclined. Like you have, kind of have to cradle the bottom of the telescope and pan around. It's pretty awkward. Mm, yeah, for sure. That's my only complaint with it. You asked if I would be interested in getting the 12. Mm-hmm. Um, I already own the 12 mil, 12 and a half millimeter doctor um, eyepiece. I got to say, if I was making a fresh start of things and i realize these are not inexpensive eyepieces but keep in mind i did buy this one when it was on sale for 60 percent off so it wasn't that expensive and uh, i think if i was doing this again i would wait out the sales and if i was building a kit after you know i think you need to observe a fair bit before you get into these kind of expensive eyepieces i just don't think it's worthwhile until you've had your plossels and your more inexpensive um, wide fields and that sort of thing. I think this is sort of uh, a final eyepiece in this, in these sort of sizes. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I think that a nice set might be something like the Teleview 31, the 17, the 12, and then uh, something like the Explore 9mm 120. Um for, for a telescope range. I think that uh, for your sort of wide peel, wide field, uh, low to mid powers, I think you'd be, you'd be there. Um, you know, I think that that would be the set pretty much ideal. Knowing even that the nine millimeter is an eyepiece you can't really use with eyeglasses. I think even with eyeglasses on, you'd get much of it in. And uh, that's an eyepiece that that I would really like to try at some point. But those are big, massive, heavy eyepieces, all of them. But I think you would be uh, pretty close to in balance with the 31 and the other ones that you could probably figure out a range. And uh, yeah, it would be a heavy little eyepiece case, four eyepieces and that much weight. But I think it would be... I think it would be pretty cool. And then then what you could do is get something like uh, the Antares 1.6X Barlow. And I don't know what that would look like with all, all those, but uh, I think that would give you uh, a little bit of uh, variance in, in the power, at least with the 9mm or maybe a, a 2X Barlow of some sort um, or a 2.5X Barlow of some sort with the 12 uh, to get sort of those higher powers. Because we did use some higher power as well um the the thing that stuck out most for me that evening and you you know i'll tell you the hallmark of really good optics for anybody who hasn't looked through really good optics and wonders why the heck would you spend more than 50 dollars on an eyepiece especially a really simple eyepiece like the one i'm going to talk about is 
is how much the image sticks with you. Like you said, Shane, we didn't have the best conditions. It was pretty windy. It was relatively unstable, but we put um, an eyepiece of yours into a barlow of mine, and it was like the Reese's peanut butter cups of eyepieces. Uh, what was that eyepiece? Yeah, I brought out, um, well, I brought out a, a collection of kind of weird, unique eyepieces. And the one that we played around with a little bit on Saturn was the Zeiss Abbey Ortho 16 millimeter. Uh, and that's from the, the first generation or the first series. There's two series of the Zeiss Abbey Orthos um, with, I think, the same focal lengths between both series. Um, just some slight differences. Like, I think series one was... Oh, it's like 44 degree field of view in series two is like 41 or 42. Mm-hmm. Um, cause some people complain slightly with the series one that like just on the very outer edge stars weren't quite sharp. So they just narrowed the they uh, just field made it smaller. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So a couple little differences like that. Maybe, I don't know. There's, I think there's. Uh, the the second gen might all be parafocal, but anyway, okay. doesn't matter about those details. Um, we started out with the 16 millimeter just natively looking at Saturn and mm. it was quite nice. And then you grabbed uh, a 3.2 Barlow. Is that correct? Yeah, it's the Teleview, but it works as a 3.2. It's a 3X, but it works as a 3.2. And that, so that gave us a five millimeter for 150 power. Yeah, yeah. And I was quite surprised actually with the view. Um, again, seeing, I don't even know if I'd give it a three out of five that night. Um, no. It was not good, but it wasn't the worst I've seen. No. Um, but we were, uh, it was quite easy to get three moons. Um, and there was a fourth one that would kind of come in and out. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Uh, even some of the banding on Saturn I was able to get. Um, I wasn't able to see the Cassini division. I'm not sure if you were able to get that, but well, we uh, were standing, right? So we, yeah, didn't... it's hard to pull that out. Yeah. So just sort of for context, um, we were on my deck, which usually, uh, is a little bit, it's, uh, I had it reinforced my builder reinforced it so I could set up telescopes on it. Um, which is, and it works really well for that. Uh, but usually with two people, there's, there's a small bit of vibration and usually we sit when we're, we're doing like a hundred and 50 power or more, but there was a lot of snow on my deck, which really worked to stabilize the telescope in the wind. But because I think we were standing at, uh, yeah, kind of impacted things. Usually we would have uh, sat if I had that set up that way. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. You know, though, another thing that really jumped out at me is your Takahashi Lapides, uh, mount. It's simple alt as mount, super stable, but I really, really enjoyed the slow motion controls. Um, that that was just fantastic, especially at those higher powers. It was really nice to be able to just dial or you know turn the knob to to keep tracking Saturn. And then for some of the other fainter objects that we were looking at, it was kind of nice to be able to you know go back and forth on the slow mo controls, um, you know, just to get some movement in the scope to tease out some of these fainter objects. Yeah, that mount and the way I have it set up is uh, I, I spent a long time thinking about what would be the best Aldaz mount. And I tracked this one down when I lived in Ontario because I'm not sure if they still make it. But to to describe the mount is it's about maybe 10 inches tall. And it's uh, kind of about uh, about as round as like a pop or a soda can kind of thing. Is that sort of a good way to describe it? Yeah. Yeah. It's quite tall, uh, taller than it is round. That's for sure. Um, yeah. 
yeah, and it's it's about as basic as it can get. And I think instead of overhanging kind of on the outside of the tripod, it it places the telescope right in the middle of the tripod, yeah. which is a genius design. Uh, like I'm a big fan of the Stellarview M2C mount. That's what I use all of the time. That's what I even yeah. brought out to your place uh, on Friday night. But um, the Stellarview hangs it kind of on the outside of the tripod. So you're already now losing, I think, just a touch of stability. But when yeah. you can have it right over the uh, the center there, um, it's just, it's it's better. And the, yeah. maybe, where, maybe where you get limited is... If you're trying to look um, like at uh, Zenith, Zenith, yeah, you're probably sure. going to bang into the mount uh, with yeah. the tack one. Whereas the um, uh, the stellar view, you'd be able to do that. But I'm not usually observing at Zenith because that's a real pain. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it and you can get up to like 75 or so degrees up before you start running into uh, the tripod. In fact, if you had it set up a little different, you can. Yeah, you can sort of work around it a little bit better. But just the way that we have it set up, I have it, it actually sits inside a hub by about an inch. So if if it wasn't in that, then you'd gain an extra inch. And because of that, you would also, um, you know, be uh, be able to point another maybe four or five degrees higher up. But yeah, I mean, how often are you looking 80 or or so degrees or higher in, into the sky? Just, just not that often. So it's a small mm-hmm. price to pay. Um but they, I don't know if they still make it. They they do not. If they, they did, I, I would own one because <laughs> I they, love that mount so much. It was really expensive. I think it was around 600 or 700 US or something like that. I, I can't remember. Maybe it was Canadian. So this is about 20 years ago. Not quite. Um, about uh, 17 years ago. And I, I had wanted one. They stopped production. And a guy was selling one that was, it was not, it was in mint working condition, but it wasn't in mint, um, like, you know, aesthetic condition. So it had some, uh, you know, some dings and scrapes and, you know, it had been well uh, used, which is always a good sign when it comes to a mount, you know, Mm -hmm. you see a lot of gear that's being sold that's in pristine condition, which you can get excited about. And then you might wonder, "Hmm, well, why, why is that? Like, is this just not a good piece of equipment, but that piece of equipment is really good. This person sold it to me. So originally, the original design, I don't know if you know the shame, was that the Lapides had a bit of an arm to it and the telescope would sit in the arm. There was another mount. It was an AstroTech something or other. Uh, and I'm just talking off the top of my head. It was put out by a number of different companies and you could actually angle that arm um, even down 45 degrees to clear the tripod or whatever. Mm. That's that's what the Lapides originally had. And then a person bought one, took it, took the arm out and then kind of refinangled it. And then when uh, people were buying them and making this modification to increase the stability and carrying capacity, because I think the original carrying capacity was um, scarcely 12 pounds and it would hold up to about 12 pounds very well they turned it into a mount that could hold 16 pounds uh exceptionally well and and because of that it it of course uh became an attractive mount for those of us with uh up to five inch class uh apocromats and that's that was the uh, audience for this mount of course a very small audience they unfortunately found out and then it went out of production so i picked this up this guy sent it to me um he was only living the town over i can't remember if i met him or or if he mailed it over, it was uh, very inexpensive because of the cosmetic condition. And I, I received it. It had these plastic knobs. That's how it came. The plastic knobs were fine. 
but I replaced those with these long aluminum knobs as, as you've seen. And I had them, what I did is I used the mount and I measured based on my telescope, how far back those knobs would be. And I had those custom um, machined and made for that, uh, for that mount to be a certain distance so that when you're looking through the eyepiece, you can rest your hand. It makes a nice hand rest. Mm. And then you can kind of just sort of move your wrist and uh, just a very comfortable motion to uh, track targets at, at high power. So that that's the setup of that mount. It's it's really quite nice for a for a manual mount that has manual slow motion. I, I haven't found one that's as uh, as nice as that. Yeah, yeah. For for the form factor, for the weight of it, and what it's able to do, I'm not sure there's a parallel. Like I don't believe any other mount does what that one can do. Mm -hmm. Um, certainly there are heavier mounts that have all of those features and work exceptionally well, but, um, you know, this is a really nice grab and go, uh, mount that can handle a pretty decent sized apocromat. So, yeah, uh, it's really, really good. If, if anybody has an opportunity to purchase one, I would say jump on it because they don't show up very often. And when they do, they, they sell pretty quickly. And then it had a, I don't know if you noticed my tension knob for the uh, altitude. Um, I have like a big um, plastic knob and uh, that didn't come with it. It came with this tiny little like set screw with like, and you could put like a Phillips head screwdriver and you're like, well, frig, you don't want to be doing that every time you want to change like your altitude tension. And it was really small. And a number of times, like I took out a heavy eyepiece and it did the nose dive and, you know, nothing mm -hmm. was damaged or whatever, but I was like, ah, this isn't good. But I, I played around and I found out that one of my Manfrotto um, knobs, just like the plastic knob actually fit in this hole. Oh, so wow. that's what I have in the hole. And then my friend, Tim, he modified it to fit on that tripod. And the tripod is, is from uh, Rudy, Rudy Dorner, who, who started at the uh, Dorner Telescope Museum and funded it. And uh, anyhow, so it's it was modified um, with the um, the slow motion controls. It was modified to go on this tripod. We did some machining to it. And then it was uh, again modified because I put this plastic set screw in. And so <laughs> this was all done in really quick order within the first... Um, basically couple weeks of getting it, I had it, I had it very modified. So originally the, the Lapides is called the Lapides modified because it was one of the ones that Takahashi had taken dismantled and reconfigured in this, um, higher carrying capacity mode. And then I took that and made all these further modifications to it. Cause I did all this research before I bought it and I was just ready to go once I, uh, once I had it. And so three weeks after I owned it, the person who had sold it to me had buyer's remorse and contacted me and said, Hey, look, I, I really want the mount back and I'll, I'll, you know, pay you what, uh, what you paid for it. Or if you want a little extra or whatever. And I said, well, I said, one, I really love the mount and, and I'm, I'm not really looking to sell it. And two, I've, uh, I've massively, you know, modified it, made all these crazy modifications. There's now some new holes drilled in it and it has different. And so I sent him a photo of it and I never heard back from the guy. I think he was kind of upset that, uh, that I'd done all these modifications to it. So, but I think it's for the better, but yeah, look, it's a bit funny looking, but it works awesome. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It does perform well. So the Zeiss, uh, ape. So is this the version two, the 16 millimeter we were looking through? 
No, version one. Version one. Yeah. And then the 3.2 Barlow gave us about uh, five millimeters for 150. Yeah, we could see those moons. It was uh, it was fantastic. Um, really like that eyepiece. The view is really stuck with me. It keeps kind of floating back in and, and out of my mind. I would like to get it on a on a great night. And I, I know what I was going to say about these expensive eyepieces is that the night seemed like it had a bit of um, like a little bit of scatter around like Jupiter and maybe a couple of the brighter stars, um, even to the unaided eye. Did you notice that as well? Yeah. Yeah. We, we noted that the transparency just wasn't outstanding either. Like again, the night was an okay night. It was, it was clear, okay. It was clear. But it was windy, which kind of impacts your seeing. Yeah. And there was certainly something in the air that was distorting the light a little bit too. Yeah. I think it, I think it comes back to what Alistair was saying about the lake here. So he and I were chatting about the lake before, and he was saying how the lake should affect my conditions more than what I've noticed. Mm -hmm. And I think it was actually the lake. So, so what happens with the lake is the lake is usually hot or frozen. And we're actually in the transition period. And yesterday morning, I could see kind of like steam coming off the lake as the lake, um, has begun to to freeze up but right in front of me and i'm sitting here right now about 120 meters away from me is is a giant lake that's 93 kilometers long and a few kilometers across at, at widest and i think this is the time of year where it's impacting uh, my observing because typically i come out here for so long and then we shut the place down and then i come out here once the lake is frozen and the sky clears out um it's just sort of an odd time of year to be observing really we often don't have Good conditions when we're in this transition phase no exactly it uh it can be a little challenging but um we persevered and i i think the zeiss abbey kind of saw through that somehow like it the scatter control is what really really impressed me with that eyepiece um, i haven't used it a ton since i've gotten it uh, because i'm primarily bino view and i only have one mm. of them so it hasn't uh hasn't seen a lot of time in my telescope um, but yeah, I was really impressed with how it, it controlled that. And, you know, what would have been kind of fun, um, would have been to go between that and say your five millimeter XW that. when I we were looking at that. Saturn. Yeah. Cause, um, where I noticed these eyepieces, like, um, like with high transmission, like these Zeiss Abbey orthos where they maybe excel is revealing like really faint things like those moons. And I'm just curious, like it was quite obvious to see them in the Zeiss eyepiece. And sometimes mm. when you switch to an eyepiece, you know, not quite as transmissive, uh, you may struggle to see those moons yeah. uh, a little bit. Now that might've been the only difference. If even that it's yeah. who knows, right. Just speculation, but, uh, yeah. it would have been neat to just compare. Yeah. I would have liked to do that comparison and, and we can, I think we should do that comparison. I think that would be. A, a comparison that people would enjoy reading about because both those eyepieces and the setup is is exceptionally rare. And that Barlow, by the way, is brand new. Um, I just bought it last year or the year yeah. before, and and it hasn't seen tons of mileage, uh, but I do really like it. And it has the compression ring. So I see, I didn't want to put that eyepiece. Originally, I thought I would get my two times Barlow, but see, that's got the set screw without the compression ring. Mm. And there there was no way I was putting your Abe into that compression ring to get that little scratch. I wasn't going to scratch that eyepiece. So that wasn't happening, but it worked so well at a at 150 power. But it would be neat to take that in the Barlow and compare it to the 5X uh, XO. I think that'd be really neat. And then I have the 5XW. Do you still have the 5NAV? No, 
Oh yeah. No, sorry. The nav I do. Yes. Yes. So we could like running a, like those would be four neat, um, eye pieces just to sit and, and compare. But, you know, I think when we do that, we want to be seated and kind of have things set up a little, a little better. And, um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I would use the five inch apocromat on that because that telescope, although it works um, very well for the planets, I I might prefer to try this experiment on uh, in the one of the Takahashi planetary telescopes just for that sake. Well, and and I think line up a few objects, not just planets, but also line up a few deep sky objects, double uh, stars, you know. and well, yeah, nebula. Uh, uh, some globulars and, uh, some galaxies and yeah, I could, uh, I could come across up, all of them. I could come up with this pretty quick and this would be a good time of year to do it too, because we mm-hmm. could get, we could take a look at like the trapezium and in the Orion nebula, mm-hmm. we could take a look at, uh, you know, uh, one of the smaller, uh, globular, uh, clusters. I'm just trying to think one of the ones up in, uh, there's one up in Pegasus or Delphinus. There's a smaller one. Um, we could take a look at a, at a few double stars, uh, the planets, but yeah, that's a good idea. I like that. That could be, that could be an interesting, uh, experiment. And even, uh, you know, just to add to it, um, even comparing it at its native focal length, um, you know, the 16 millimeters, we could run it against <laughs> the, um, 17. the 17. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You want to get that photo of like the mini and the mighty kind of, you know, yeah. Because literally the 17 millimeter, I have my, my, uh, it's a, a 1000 milliliter or a 32 ounce, uh, water bottle here and full, uh, well, this is only half full, but if it was full, that's how big and hefty the, uh, 17 millimeter Explorer Science uh, 92 degree is mm-hmm, mm-hmm. compared to yours, which is more like, uh, like a thimble. You know? Yeah, yeah, it's there's not a lot to it, and I could even bring the the Leica uh, Ashfield Zoom. We could we could oh, yeah. we could make a whole event out of this with all sorts of eyepieces. Yeah, to, to play around with. I think that t- to be honest, I I was you seem less nervous about this than I did. Was um, I did not like handing you that eyepiece and being handed that eyepiece in like over the snow or even like anywhere. I was a little bit uncomfortable with that. Like I would almost want to have the observatory running to to do that experiment just because it felt a little sketchy with all the snow and wind. And <laughs> I was like, uh. you, you were fine. I was just like, I guess because last year I did drop an eyepiece. So mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Yeah, we should definitely do it at some point here. Yeah. Um, uh, was neat to look at the uh we took a look at the Merope nebula. Yeah. Um, in yeah, the, in neat. the Pleiades, I, I forget what eyepiece it might've been my 40 with, I used, uh, we looked at it unaided and then I put the H beta in for fun. Yeah. Yeah. And it definitely popped out a little bit and it was neat to have a look at that. Mm-hmm. Enjoyed it. The, uh, just going back to the helix a little bit too. Um, I couldn't believe just how much detail we were seeing in there and it was sort of fleeting, like it would come and go, but given that we were standing in the, in the night's conditions, it was really yeah. impressive. And, you know, I was like with averted vision and it would kind of come and go. There's sort of that arc that comes off of the helix a little bit. And, yeah. uh, was definitely seeing that from time to time. Oh yeah. It was really neat. Yeah. I, I thought you made a, a really neat comment about, um, 
convincing yourself that you could see it. So what we did is I had my 40 millimeter with an O3N mm-hmm. and that gives 18 power in the five inch. And then when we scanned over it, it, it was like, you know, knock your socks off obvious, right? Like there was no way you could miss it in, in that setup. eh? Absolutely. Yeah. Like as soon as you put your eye there, like the helix is quite large and it's fairly bright and it just popped. Like it was, there was no mistaking it. Yeah. And then what I did is I put the 17 millimeter in no filter. And then I kind of panned around a bit because it was, well, it, it wasn't obvious. So, and realize this too, when I put the 17 in, it can um, cause the telescope to uh, tail dive a little bit. Mm-hmm. So it will off center, whatever, um, whatever you've got there. If you don't have it like locked down, like a very, very uh, particular way. And I, I didn't. And so uh, then Shane, you went and panned it around a bit and kind of put it in a spot and said, I like, I, I could convince myself or something like that. Eh? Like you said something, what was it that you said? Do you remember? Yeah. Like I said, I think I can convince myself that I'm seeing it, which means I'm not sure that I'm really seeing it because mm-hmm. who knows? It, it wasn't super apparent. Yeah. So then what I did is I locked everything down and put the 40 back in and it was centered, right? It was neat. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it and was, it was right there. Yeah. It was right there. So it was kind of a neat experiment as to when we think like we're very dopeful of ourselves for seeing or not seeing stuff. Um, yeah, it was just sort of a, a neat experiment to run. And then we put the filter on on the 17 and it wasn't as obvious as in the 40, but then you could start pulling out some of that detail I think you were referring to. Yeah, yeah. I think my preferred view was with the 40. Um you know, backing off the power sometimes will make objects appear brighter because uh, of the exit pupil. And uh, I, I did prefer that view a lot. Yeah. I, I uh, like I said, we had a lot of snow down and I had, a, I had eyepieces. I had a, a handful of eyepieces, but just because I uh, was, was sort of nervous about messing around too much with all the snow and it wasn't level and, you know, we're basically, yeah, it wasn't the, the ideal conditions. It would have been nice to kind of try a few different powers. Like I should have tried my 32, but I think I had a different filter in. And then it would have been nice to try the 22 as well. I keep thinking it would be nice to find a, a Nagler 26 uh, at some point in time and uh, in the far and distant future to uh, to try as well. But yeah, it was uh, yeah, it was pretty cool. And what else did we look at? We looked at uh, we looked at the ring at the end. We looked at the California Nebula, but that's just like. Yeah, yeah, we saw it. it was, wasn't yeah, it? <laughs> there wasn't a lot there. You you need a darker sky for that to be really appreciated, I think. And um, the uh, the ring though was great. You know, the ring was well positioned. It was a you know a little bit you know into the western sky now for us. And uh, it just I always love looking at the ring because of how well it takes magnification. Mm. And I think my comment was like this exact, this view is exactly like it was in my eight inch Newtonian way yeah. back when, when I had it. Um, and it just, it was really quite beautiful. It, you know, there is no need for averted vision to see the donut structure. It was quite obvious. And uh, I forget what power we were running on that. Was that the five millimeter? I think it might've mm-hmm. been. Yeah. Yeah. So about 150 times. 150, yeah. Yeah, it really jumped out and uh, huge. You know, this, the image scale at that magnification was great. Really, really good view. Like it was already kind of obvious to me anyway that it wasn't a perfect circle, you know, that it's yeah. a little, you know, kind of oblong, I guess. And uh, yeah, nice view. Really nice view. 
Yeah. Yeah. I think we had, uh, like I said, some of the moisture in there because on, on better nights, I've done a few sketches of the California from here and it's, uh, yeah, like last night I found like, or that night, Friday night, we, it was like, we could scarcely see it. It was definitely not anything to write home about, but, uh, I guess it was about a month ago. Yeah. And the binoculars, it was, yeah, it was, uh, very, very easy to see and, and quite clear. And then the, uh, with the telescope. Yeah. Last November, I did a sketch of it. It was, it was pretty good. But yeah, that night, Friday night, it was just sort of okay conditions between a little bit of stuff in the atmosphere and the wind. Yeah. It just wasn't there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what else in the session? One thing, one thing we did, which was kind of cool is, uh, and this took, this, this took a bit, a bit of a while just because of everything going on in the past uh, few months, but uh, we're able to trade off uh, a few things, eh? Mm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so Eric had sent, uh, so Eric is, uh, he's been on the show. He's, uh, he helped get an article published uh, about the podcast and Sky News. Um, and we've had lots of correspondence with him. Great guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, he sent some uh hoodies or you know depending where you live bunny hugs is another term <laughs> uh, hoodies for the rest of the world for hoodies the rest for the of rest of the world yeah <laughs> that's right and um and you know what chris i'm actually uh i always call them hoodies as well i'm not a bunny hug guy so yeah, i might get I kicked know. out of the province we'll see i don't know yeah yeah <laughs> but anyway um he sent that he sent some stickers um in in the hoodie uh it says star seeker on it and it, it's from the calgary rasc center yeah um, so thanks, Eric. Really appreciate it. Uh, it's a great looking hoodie and, and the, the, uh, stickers will look great on my eyepiece cases. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty, pretty cool. And then uh, Andrew had sent some, uh, I think you probably, those beers are probably long since, uh, processed on your end, Shane. No, no, no. Oh, I've, uh, <laughs> I've still got a few. Yeah. 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 But, uh, delicious, delicious beers from, uh, where, where in Ontario? I forget now. He's near London. I don't okay. don't know exactly where near London, Ontario, but he's got the Fork River uh, Brewing Company there. Yeah, yeah, delicious uh, libations. Quite enjoyed what I've drank so far. Yeah, you uh, dropped out those uh, ciders, which is uh, yeah, really really appreciated. Those went to your house, and then somebody else, Chris, is sending us something. Um, yeah, I'm excited to see what uh, what lands lands in the mail here in coming weeks. Should be. Uh, should be kind of neat to to see what arrives but yeah sometimes it can be few and far between when when we get together just especially this year where see i even kind of drive by the exit to your place on my way out here but so many times i've been trying to run out here to meet with my my builder because he's been working on the observatory and uh and that's kind of how it's done so you gotta you know arrange and then meet that's happening on virtually uh 90 of the time when i'm driving out here or then it's like really late or at an awkward time and it's like ah this this isn't going to work out so i'm glad that uh that things finally worked out but uh yeah anything to add to to that session maybe i'll talk a little bit more about the rest of my observing yeah go ahead yeah so after after you left i went in and warmed up for about half an hour and left the five inch setup and uh went back out and pointed it at the the north american nebula because cygnus had kind of swung around enough by that point, I've done a few sketches of it over the past couple of years. Um, but then that night I put in the UHC filter and the 32 millimeter Massiema, which has about an 80 degree uh, field, G- gives 3.3 true field in that telescope, just barely enough to squeeze both the North American and the uh, Pelican Nebula 
into uh, the field of view. You could clearly see that Cygnus wall wrapping around the Pelican Nebula and uh, and the dark void between them uh, when a lens dark nebula at 935. And uh, additionally, down below, I could just scarcely detect the Cygnus arc IC 5068, which is just to the south. Uh, and yeah, it was kind of kind of neat. I think next time I'm kind of hoping to uh, maybe do another one of these and maybe try to track down some more of there's like some asterisms and clusters um in in the region as well so i think i i need a chart to kind of properly suss out all those those kind of things but I, I was happy with the way the sketch came out sort of gives kind of that appearance of these two nebula together yeah yeah it is uh an interesting sketch um good observation yeah, I also sketched the uh, Veil Nebula. I got the East, West, and Pick Pickering's Triangle, but the sketch wasn't that good. It's yeah, I find this is what happens with my sketching is I'll I'll get one sketch and it comes out really well, really fast, like that sketch of the North American. That's like, you know, while well, I was observing it for maybe half an hour, and that probably is representative of maybe like only fifteen or twenty minutes of of work, and then uh, and then I go over to the Veil Nebula and. No, can't. I just can't get it. I just can't get the sketch down of it the way I want. But yeah, it seems like the nature of of the sketching. Yeah, yeah. And not that I know anything about it, but I'll I'll take your word. <laughs> give it a try. I gave you all those pencils that time. You should. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah I forgot. I should probably return those because, truth be told, I likely won't get too deep into that. <laughs> anyway, um, so I I packed it in around midnight and went to bed for four hours and got up at. Uh, I guess about 4.30, I got four hours sleep and woke up at 4.30 and slowly got ready and, and went out. It was actually windier <laughs> at 4.30 in the morning. Okay. It was still just minus four and I took a quick look at M42 and M93 and maybe a couple other things like very, very quick because I wanted to look at the uh, Seagull Nebula there, um, which is on the Canis Major Monoceros border, although I think the the main part of it up is is in Monoceros. Um, this is pretty faint. This is one of those challenge objects. Not sure if you're you're familiar with this one, Shane. No, I'm not. Um, but it it's it's one of those large, wide field targets, but it's pretty faint. And then there's also some some confusion about it. It's a bit of an enigmatic target because. Um, some of the catalog numbers have been confused. There, there's uh, basically a bright nebula or a brightish nebula, which represents the seagull's head. And then the wingspan runs north-south. And uh, the seagull's head looks like it's sort of turning back to look over the north wing. And then there's there's some other associated and not associated nebula and, and clusters in, the, uh, in this sort of uh, three-degree uh, north-south stretch. I guess it's about a degree or so wide about almost three degrees long or three degrees long once you factor everything in. Um, it's one of those ones that kind of jumps out on the star charts, but unfortunately, uh, every time I've gone to take a look at it in the past, it's sort of like, you know, at the end of the observing session, once this region of sky is nice and high, uh, you know, you're just, you know, it's really cold and you're burnout from observing. And I've never even remotely seen anything in this region of sky, but, uh, there on Saturday morning, I had my star chart all picked out and ready to go and kind of knew the knew where the field was. And so I quickly star hopped there. I had the H beta still in the 40 millimeter from when we were looking at the California nebula the night before. 
And uh, I noticed that in the interstellarum chart, you know how it notes which filters should work well with which nebula? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Said that the H beta should work well for uh, the head of okay. the, the seagull. And that's uh, Vandenberg 93. And then it said it sort of has like the H for H beta in the in the circle that that depicts the outline of the nebula. And then for the wingspan, which runs north south, it had a, an O in that, which represents the the O3 saying that an O3 filter should work well for that. Um, I didn't find that to be the case as I as I swept over, I could clearly see like the outline of the nebula. And I thought, oh, well, that's cool, because if it's showing up that well in H beta, I wonder what it looks like without the filter. So I took the filter out. I could scarcely convince myself, kind of like when you were talking about the helix before. I could like kind of convince myself maybe I was kind of sort of seeing something there, but not really put the O3 filter in. The nebula was about the same as as no filter view, but uh, there's a nebula at the southern extreme called uh, Cedar Bland 90, and that one just boom, like it just like someone threw a light switch on and it was so bright and distracting. I wasn't even sure if it was part of this association or not. And uh, and I actually started sketching there because I was like, well, regardless of the seagull, this is an interesting target. It looks like something. So I started my sketch there and then sketched from the south um, to the north. So uh, with the O3 filter, that one really jumped out. And then I put the uh, I took that filter out made an observation and drew in the stars um, without the filters and, and drew in several clusters. There's a cluster to the south, uh, east, uh, NGC uh, 2345. And then there's a cluster on the um, sort of the middle eastern section, which is uh, 2343. And then opposite that is the head of the seagull, which is uh, Sharpless 2 dash uh, or it's the uh, Vandenberg 9093, not to confuse uh, chart numbers. And then I could see in and around that brighter um, H beta head, uh, you could actually see these tendrils of uh, sort of a mix of star clouds and nebula. Some of them are star clouds and some of them are nebula. But I, like I said, I didn't really do a lot of research um, or look at too many images before and then kind of had sketched them in. And then um, my sketch wasn't great because it was sort of compressed because I ran out of room on the page. So I kind of had sort of bent it in a funny way. And so I, I had to redo it yesterday because it was uh, sort of a rare observation of this. So then looking at photos, especially hydrogen alpha photos, I could see these sort of faint fingers coming up and you could see that some of them aren't uh, nebula, but what they are is uh, is just uh, just star clouds. So so yeah, that was, uh, that was kind of a, a neat observation to make, sort of something I always wanted to do and a great... Uh, a great target for uh, really low power wide fields. Uh, it's in Sue French's Deep Sky Wonders uh, hardcover book. She talks about seeing it with her 105 millimeter at 17 power. So if she's seeing it at that, I don't know what her skies were like. I, I think her skies are kind of similar to what I have here. And so with a with a five inch operating at essentially the same power, I'm, I think I'm able to get maybe a little bit more of the nebula. Hmm. Yeah, interesting. Last night I went out with the binoculars and saw, I tried to see it. I, I Again, I, I could kind of convince myself I could see it, but I took a look at the uh, Orion Nebula. I took a look at uh, Messi 78, took a look at the uh, Beehive M44 and M67 and just kind of panned around uh, quite a bit. It was 
yeah, it was just uh, a windy but uh, very warm uh, middle of the night section uh, session for this time. You're positive three degrees, but uh, like I said, really, really windy. And uh, yeah, it was just kind of nice. Took a look at M93 and basically just like a 20 minute session or so, and then then went back to uh, went back to bed. But yeah, so I got a I got a few sessions in and like about a 36 hour period of time or something like that or less. Yeah, yeah right on. Cool. Yeah. yeah, yeah, cool. Anything else to uh, to add s- sort of to this uh, observation show? Nope, that is all, sir. All right, well, dear listeners, please subscribe to us a favor and share the show with other stargazers you know. Thanks for listening. You can send us your show ideas, your own observations like we just shared today, and any questions you might have about observational or amateur astronomy to actualastronomy at gmail.com. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com.